Welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The purpose of our podcast is to inspire you with stories and wisdom learned from people who are out there killing it. People who at some point in their life gave themselves permission to succeed. Now, onto the show with your hosts, Matt Halloran and Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We are live at the SALT conference at the beautiful Bellagio Hotel. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that at some point in their lives, they wanted to throw caution to the wind and just go for it. They gave themselves permission to be special and to help those around them be special as well. And our guest today has been absolutely crushing it for a long time. Welcome Nick Vito, the co-founder of Columbia Care, one of the largest medical cannabis companies in U.S. and Europe. Hello. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? How are you finding the conference being such a different thing? Well, it's bringing up a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of ghosts from 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 the past because I came from finance, so I see familiar faces all over the place and uh, a lot of old gold, gold medal alum just sort of walking around the hallway uh, doing what they've always done. And looking like Goldman alum, and you're doing something completely different. I definitely get a get a uh, sort of a surprise look when I tell people what I'm doing. Yeah. So let's talk about the industry. It's kind of the wild west out there. There are states that are in, there are states that are out. You have presidential candidates that say it should be a federal law. You have NBA players still getting arrested at hotels. You got Mr. Tyson opening up a ranch in California. What is going on out there? It's really complicated. Um, and I think it's a perfect example of one of those rare moments when there's just this groundswell of interest from the general population. And what I think is so fascinating that is that it really is being driven by a consciousness around health, plant-based solutions to health and wellness, as opposed to just sort of a, a very narrow field of sort of um, sort of views that um, that sometimes can be a little bit controversial and sometimes not. Uh, but everybody can agree that if there was a healthier, better way to live, that this, you know, this, that's the sort of thing that should be examined and should be ratified. Are you seeing the acceptance arc happen faster and faster as we go, as we go on? It's accelerating at a pace I don't think anyone could have predicted. Uh, and it's not just in the U.S. and it's not just in markets where the programs have been introduced. It's actually global. And so, um, you know, we're now expanding into the EU slowly. Uh, but the U.S. is still the largest market, but it's, it's incredible. Um, the average age of a consumer or patient who served in Arizona about six and a half years ago was a, a sort of young 30s male. Uh, today in New York, it's a mid-50s female. So the, the, the absolute demographics of who is considering this as an alternative has sort of been turned upside down. We're at a financial services conference, and are you finding people in financial services either embracing it or kind of like, ooh, it's cannabis, I don't know yet? This is one of those uh, really unique aspects, and I think it's actually a huge opportunity. The institutional community has a very difficult time investing in cannabis, particularly in the United States, which is ironic because, as I said, the U.S. is the largest market. Um, but it does open the door for individual investors and so let's call it ultra-high net worth individuals uh, as well to invest in a space ahead of, let's call it a technical upturn uh, in the demand profile associated with the sort of the industry. So if you think about a normal industry, what happens in venture capital, you know, the big venture capital companies get big allocations from the founders and then they fund these businesses and then they go public. Uh, and a lot of the value that was created um, is captured by the people before the business ever even has a chance to get there um, into the public markets. In this case, you know, we just went public last week, but there really isn't a lot of institutional um, opportunity because of the complexity of the regulatory environment. 
so people can basically be ahead of a lot of those demands that you usually see much earlier on in the investment cycle. Not only is that there, that complexity, but there's also complexity with the products. You know, I live in California. When I go into a dispensary, you don't need to give your driver's license. And there's just an array of stuff with some young person behind the counter going, pointing in different directions. So how do you find out information on different things and what's real? Well, I think that is a huge and it's a structural problem with the industry. Uh, it's something that regulators can be, should be, and will be very focused on going forward. Uh, the consistency of products, quality controls used in a lot of the products is just not known. And that's one of the things we've really focused on. So, for example, our pharmaceutical product line is made within um, using lot batch testing protocols that are within FDA standards. And we do that because it's very important not only for the consumer and the patient and their provider or caregiver to know what that person is taking, um, but to make sure that they have a consistent experience. I mean, how many times have you heard of somebody trying an edible or trying some form of cannabis product and then they just literally sleep for 24 hours? Right? No one wants to be caught by surprise. Everyone wants a consistent outcome. And frankly, a lot of people aren't looking to get high per se. They're looking at this as an opportunity to live well, live, live healthier, and they're trying to replace NSAIDs. They're trying to replace a sleep aid. They're trying to replace, you name it. And so having the right form factor along with the right formulations of cannabinoids, because it's not just THC and it's not just CBD, it's a whole range of things that the plant offers. Um, and finding a way to put that into a uh, precisely manufactured structure so that people have that, that trust uh, that can be built over time. Um, that's where the, the market needs to go, and that's how you end up answering the question that you just asked, because uh, right now it's a little bit like the foxes are watching the hen house, and it's not that there is an intent, it's just that there's such a flood of new products and new companies, and so you people need to find and pick their spots where they actually see something that, uh, that works for them, that they trust, and they can validate. So let's get to the health and wellness. You just launched 100 million ways to break the opioid crisis. What is that? And that's, that's amazing. So it's, it's how we think about our mission and purpose. It's how we build the organization. So if we go back to the history of the company, our first market, we started asking basic questions about the marketplace. You know, who are we serving? Why are they, why are, why are they coming to us? Are they, is there something about their lives that we can help improve? And so we started asking questions, which is a very standard thing that most companies use third parties to do and it's it's you know having had a healthcare background uh, it's just it's part and parcel for you know best practices and what we discovered in that first survey is that 68 percent of our patients were hiv positive in that one cohort uh, a significant percentage of them almost 70 percent were using our products as a substitute for benzos and opioids uh, they were saving between 50 and 150 dollars a month because the way the copay structures were even though this was an out-of-pocket paying product and 93 percent of them said that the products worked better so Fast forward to today, um, we've taken all of that data nationally and we put it into a, a, a big warehouse of data. And um, along with Columbia University, we analyzed that data. And what we found is that when we looked at a cohort of uh, neuropathy patients, pain, basically nerve pain patients over a nine month period without any intervention, 62% of them showed a reduction in the use of opioids or stabilization in the use of opioids. And that was an amazing fact because it just happened naturally. They, 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 no one was suggesting someone take a drug to replace another drug. It just happened because they didn't need it anymore, right? And that is a that is incredibly powerful. So we we sort of took a step back and said, what do we do now? Where do we go? Um, so we decided to launch the 100 million ways to break the opioid crisis, and the goal is to take 100 million doses of opioids off the streets and and simply by doing you know a very simple thing. 
uh, finding institutional support or partner, partnering. Uh, we're rolling this out first in New York because the laws allow us to. And so we're going to be partnering with Montefiore and Einstein College of Medicine and their addiction specialists who are world-renowned. And we're going to open up our entire national infrastructure. So if someone walks in our front door with an opioid prescription, we'll help them enroll in a state program and we'll actually give them uh, access to our products for the same price as a copay. So we can actually swap out milligram to sort of milligram in comparison way, in a comparison sort of uh, methodology to sort of say, hey, you have a choice, people. You don't have to just take this prescription and sort of go down this potentially dangerous path. And the, and the choice is to try something new, obviously with the support of the doctor, with a structure in place. Uh, but there's what we're trying to do is eliminate the financial incentive to give people a different path. And in the hopes of sort of finding some sort of new alternative to pain management, because I think that's a real problem. People have all these massively expensive uh, initiatives to try to fight the opioid crisis, but the crux of the matter is that people still have pain. So we've got a product we think that works. We've, we've seen the data to show that it works. We want to validate it on a national scale, and we frankly, we want to go out and actually take it right to the manufacturers, to the insurance companies and payers, uh, to the policymakers, and we want to show them this data to, sh to prove once and for all that there is not a Sophie's choice here. Right? There's a better alternative, and people deserve it. And what we love about this is that it's going to be driven by, you know, by citizens, by people in the communities that are being ravaged by this poison, by you know, by this by, by the opioids that have just, you know, I'm not saying that they don't have a place in every circumstance, but there are a lot of circumstances they just shouldn't be used. And, you know, think about the pediatric applications and the implications for a pediatric. Uh, for a child being exposed to opioids in an early age. It's, it's just a nightmare. This, that seems like one great way to get past the stigma of what we thought about marijuana a long time ago. What are some of the other ways that will help the industry grow in a positive way? So I think that, I think that the industry needs to embrace the notion of consistency and quality across markets. And I think the industry needs to make that a focus point uh, because I think that there is a stigma uh, attached to a lot of the counterculture attributes. Whether or not the counterculture attributes are meaningful is, is really not the point. I think the point is if someone is going to be using this product, they deserve to know that what they're taking, what they're using, what they're putting in or on their body is safe, it's healthy, it's consistent, and it doesn't have impurities that could wind up causing an un significant un you know, unintended consequence. So let's talk about how you got here. W where did you grow up? So I grew up in Maryland. And what was that like? What were your parents like? What do you remember about that time? Oh, God, I mean, it's like, I, I feel like it was the 1950s. We, we had short hair and, you know, we played sports and um, I went to a Catholic all-boys school. And we were, it was, it was really, uh, it was really funny because, you know, cannabis wasn't even on our radar screen. No, not when I grew up either. Yeah. So who, who did you admire at that time? Who did you, like, publicly or privately or? Um, yeah. You know, I really love folks like, now of course I can't remember, but you know, so I was an Orioles fan. Yeah. And I mean, I loved, I loved athletes that were really sort of quiet and they just got the job done. I didn't really like a lot of the show. More Cal Ripken than Reggie Jackson. It's exactly right. I mean, Cal Ripken was a man. <laughs> I just always really respected people who kind of were professionals and um, it wasn't about the show it was just about the performance and about the community and about doing the doing the right thing and um, you know I was I was fortunate that uh, that there were a lot of role, role models like that out there when I was little and then you kind of grew up and went to school and did you go right I'm like being financial services I'm gonna be Goldman and 
that kind of thing? So I, I was a, it's funny, I was actually, I was, I went to Columbia and I graduated and went into financial services, but I, you know, I, um, I had no, I never really had any, any interest in, um, in this industry, the cannabis industry. Right. It didn't even exist, I guess. So there was, there wasn't even an option, but I was fortunate in that I had a great experience, I had great mentors at Goldman. And, uh, when I, when I left, I joined uh, several investment firms and I was able to stay focused in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Abbott, uh, who was also a little bit alum, and I got together and uh, we made an investment in a business that won licenses uh, in the cannabis industry. And what we found is that nobody had any idea what they were doing. This industry was, we think it was the Wild West today. Back then, it was a total disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, the people who were washing up on our shores, um, it was just shocking. But we made every mistake in the book, and um, I began the process of literally moving from state to state uh, as we built out the national network. So I went from uh, from D.C. to Arizona, from Arizona to Massachusetts, from Massachusetts to Illinois, and sort of so on and so forth. And it was um, it was very very taxing. It was hard because every state was different, every regulatory structure was different. We were capital starved. Um, we kept on making different mistakes along the way, but at least we learned from the mistakes. And um, we had, I want to say, countless near-death experiences. And frankly, you know, there's some times in life when you just keep on plowing ahead and the, and the universe just gives you a pass. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons why we're so focused on the mission of, of really trying to do, uh, to do a good thing uh, with building this business and really focus on the things that matter is it's not just economic, right? It's not just because it makes good sense to sort of replace opioids. opioids. It's because... Somewhere at some point, you know, out there, people sort of gave us trust. They gave us their reputations. They gave us their capital, and that was a big deal because cannabis is not an industry where people often think about integrity. Right? It's sort of the opposite. And so, for us, the uh, the opportunity wasn't just to build a company and build a different company, but it was really to focus on the mission and, and sort of not only embrace but really um, sort of acknowledge and sort of. Um, respect the legacy of a lot of the people who sort of showed up and said, you know what, we're going to help you. I mean, I can still remember, um, I'll tell you a terrible story. The uh, first 45 days after we began sort of technically operating, we raised capital, um, I went around to all of our investors and told them that, uh, I told them that you know, we had everything buttoned up. We knew the financial model where we were, you know, I thought I knew it all. And one of our accounts came up to me and said, hey, by the way, there's, you know, there's, a, there's six figures of cash that's missing from the account. And I was like, how is this possible? And he said, I don't know. So we started looking into it. It turned out that some, someone who was working for the company actually just had started embezzling. Okay. In the first 45 <laughs> days. And, you know, that's about the worst thing. For, you know, imagine you go around to all these amazing people and sort of they invest with you and so you catch somebody doing something like that. And I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, I just assumed that we were all sort of marching to the same drum beat, but that just wasn't the case. And uh, I don't know if I can mention the name, so I probably shouldn't, but two very successful entrepreneurs, uh, and they, they really are some of the nicest guys in the world. Um, one of them is, is, is named Jerry, and I still remember calling him and thinking, this is the end of my career. I've got to call him, and I've got to tell him that I was the one who made the decision and the pitch. I, was, I pitched him to invest in this company. He did. He trusted me. And then I was the guy who hired this other person who then stole from the company. I mean, it was the worst form of leadership failure I've ever seen. And uh, he 
called me up and he was an entrepreneur and he said, that's okay, Nick. He said, remember, we invested only half as much as we thought you were going to need because we knew something like this would happen. And he just, you know, he just sort of, I, I mean, I was contrite, I was sorry, I was, I, was, I, was, I was completely torn up inside. And, you know, everything that I took for granted in terms of people, you know, sort of operating a certain way was just thrown right out the window. But the people who really could have come down on me hard supported me. And that, to me, was like the greatest thing. It was the greatest learning lesson I'd ever experienced because it showed me that, you know, and I, what I hope that everyone sort of who hears the story realizes that sometimes sort of supporting people through the difficult periods um, is important because now, you know, I think the company was worth almost nothing back then. Yeah. Public for, you know, it was a billion and a half dollars. So, you know, that was, that's been financial rewarding because they made the decision to support me instead of just saying, you know what, you're, you're just a giant idiot. Right. Which is exactly what they could have done. But didn't others think that you were committing career suicide by becoming in the industry you're in now? Oh, yeah. Every single person I ever worked for called me up and said, you'll never get another job. Uh, you can't possibly do this. You've got to get out of that. And it lasted for a long time. And I think one of the most satisfying moments was when a lot of those people started coming back and asking if they could invest in the company. Because, you know, it's, we were so far out on the risk curve. We were so far, um, you know, the first company to think about a multi-state operation. We were the first U.S. company to think about Europe. We're the, we did a lot of things before everybody else. And we were the first company to really thought about the medical and health and wellness applications, whereas most of our competitors were talking about REC. So the number of debates we've had internally with experts saying, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it this way? And there was just a, I don't know if it's hard-headedness, but it was just a, a level of conviction and, and, and faith that, you know, you use the golden rule and you try to use empathy in your thought process. And there's, um, you can see problems through other people's eyes and you, you know, that's where we want it to be. It wasn't about following what other people were doing. It was about defining the opportunity in the way we thought it would be most uh, authentic. You know, I'll never be, a, I, I'm wearing khakis. I've worn khakis since I was like six years old. I've had the same haircut since I had hair. Like, I, I'm not, I'm never going to be the cool guy in the room. I'm never going to be the guy that shows up and, and everyone's like, hey, you know, I'm the guy that just sort of, you know, that went home on the front. You know, I, I was always kind of a, you know, a nerd. But I'm okay with that because that's who I am. You know, I love sports, but I wasn't a great athlete. It's, you know, these things happen. But I couldn't imagine trying to do something in this industry and try by being something that I'm not. And I feel really comfortable standing up in front of a crowd of people saying, hey, you know what? I know this is going to sound like a total, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal. And I know you're going to tell me it's impossible. But we're actually going to try and break the opioid crisis or we're going to try to offer a solution. Or, you know what? You know, um, you know I know that cannabis is illegal, um, but we can do this and we can do this to, for the benefit of, of our communities and we can do this in a way that's respectful not only the people who we serve, but the people we don't serve, because there's another side to the equation which goes beyond just the people coming through a front door. So it was, I'm fortunate that uh, I was born with that stubbornness. It may have come from, probably came from both of my parents, it's, you know, some, some like Irish relative who I never met, but uh, it's, uh, you know, time will tell if we're, if we're right, but at least it feels really good that, about what we're doing. And it feels like bring the people on board into the company that really believe, and that's nice, because when you believe in something, you, you, you work harder, you work smarter, you care more. So all those details that people kind of blow up ordinarily really become meaningful. And the thing about it, which is so fascinating, is that it's not about us. It's not about the company. Right? You spend one hour in one of our facilities anywhere in the country, and you sit down and have a chance just to chat with the people who come in. And they, they affect these, our products and services and they have on people's lives and our ability to actually add some humanity back into, frankly, a very inhumane healthcare system. That is something to be really proud of. 
I mean, how many times have you know do, have I heard the story that someone goes to the hospital? I've experienced this personally. And you get treated like you're in a cattle call. I mean, no one really cares. You know, you really don't even get to see a doctor. No one, no one actually asks the questions about you. They're just you're part of a process because some payer or some regulator or some administrator decided this is the way we're going to do it because it's efficient. And that's what we want to get away from. It doesn't mean we're not scalable. We're actually incredibly scalable because we use technology and a lot of new things to sort of, and home delivery and you know, all these different innovations to sort of provide that service. But it's the people that make the company function. So, you know, when you walk into a traditional, in California, they call, they're called bud tenders, right? So you walk into a dispensary and someone's a bud tender, right? Uh, they're tending the bud, they're tending the product. And that's not, we want to tend the people. Right. The products are a, a conduit for the people. So we, we kind of flip everything around a little bit, which is you put the people first who you serve, and then everything else falls into place. So this is the Permission to Succeed podcast. And maybe it was that embezzling time, or maybe there was a series of times throughout this journey that you kind of looked yourself in the mirror and said, it's me, man. There's no one else coming. I got to do it. Was there those times? Or is it repeating itself? Or was there one one time? There was, I mean... Probably one of the lowest points of my. Uh... So I was that guy in finance. I thought it was awesome because I worked at Goldman and Goldman had just gone public. I thought that what could possibly go wrong, and I didn't. Uh, I had no idea what an idiot I was, because I'd seen such a limited field, such a limited view of experiences professionally. And then when we started this company, it really opened my eyes uh, to so many complexities about running a company and running an organization, which is a living, breathing thing. But to get to this point. There was a moment when uh, I still remember I actually had to move into my parents' house because the company couldn't afford a hotel room. So we were in opening in DC, living in my high school bedroom, and the window was open. And I heard my mom outside, and she was walking the dog. And like at that, we were at the age at that point, you know, in sort of early or late twenties, early thirties, when people started getting married and having children. So they, so my old friends started moving onto my parents' street. And I actually heard my mom outside talking to one of my one of one of my buddies. Um, or a guy who I went to high school with. And she's like, oh yeah, Nick, Nick, Nick is right upstairs. He's, he's in his bedroom right now. He's in the pot business. And you could hear her, like, <laughs> I, like, you could hear like, the other person say, what? And she's like, yeah, he moved in from home. He's, he's not living in New York anymore. And it was just like such an oversimplification. It was, it was awful. And I walked downstairs and my mom and dad, I felt like I was George Costanza, Costanza living in the Costanza's household um, because they would just argue about you know, how I had all of a sudden become the least, the least successful child like I went from like I went from being sort of self self sufficient to being like the loser who was, who was in the pot business, and uh, I don't remind my parents of that too often because I don't want to uh, I don't want to relive it. But like it just kept like getting darker from there. Like you know my girlfriend dumped me. I mean it was just it went on and on and on. So it's like if you think about something that sounds like it's cliche, it's probably happened. I just need like maybe a beer or two to to sort of bring it to the uh, bring it to the surface. So. I don't think success for you is going public and being a billion dollar company. No. It's more about helping people and doing something that does, that serves people. Yeah, the, it, it, it's so, the capital market's reflection of the value is so meaningful, right? Because that's a reflection of trust. Yeah. That people are willing to sort of give you their capital to turn it into a rate of return. But it's also an acknowledgement, I hope, that it's more than just a financial transaction. People actually understand our strategy and they believe what we're trying to accomplish. But when my, so my dad's, you know, uh, my dad did drug interdiction in Southeast Asia when he was a young man. And, uh, you know, to say that I grew up in just say no house is a gross understatement. So that all those complexities are one thing. But my, uh, 
when my mom actually used some of our topicals for her arthritis, that was really meaningful to me because, uh, you know, there's nothing more personal than someone's well-being, someone's health care. Mm-hmm. Someone hurts, like, and you can actually provide it and sort of fill that void. It opens the door for them to live such a different life and contribute in so many different ways. And, you know, there's just, there's sort of this, this karma that um, really gives you pride. And it's not just the pride of building a company that works. It's the pride of being associated with people that really care. It's pride of seeing the, the reactions to folks when they find out that you work there. I was in a, I was at a dinner once in, uh, in New York, and some gentleman was there. He didn't know who I was. I'd never met him before. And he was telling a story about how his daughter had Crohn's disease and how she was, for the first time, going to go and try medical cannabis and how she'd gone to this location in Massachusetts and her experience had been phenomenal the products worked and he's like for the first time in years so she's happy and then you could see the joy in his face she'd gone to one of our facilities and I was just sitting there thinking to myself I, I don't even know how to respond to this but I immediately told the team this spirit this story because like they had to know that what they did really mattered because it's so easy today right everything's everything's data driven and analytic and everybody's got KPIs it's so easy to lose track of the fact that you know, there is a human element to what we're doing here. So you can look for optimizing performance, but if you forget about the basics, then, you know, I'm not sure where to go. So we'll get you out of here with this question. For all the other entrepreneurs who are living in their high school bedrooms, (laughs) (laughs) what advice do you have for them? Have faith in yourself. If you really believe in what you're doing, uh, don't give up and don't be willing to fail. Like embrace that failure and embrace the struggle because... You know, I remember running around New York trying to find an ATM that would dispense fives instead of tens because I didn't have ten dollars in my bank account, right? And it's I had I had I had experienced success, so I knew what that was like. But I had made investments in, uh, in the company that you know that weren't yielding any output at that point. And these are just things that it's frightening. It's frightening. It's very lonely. It's very easy for other people to criticize, and you just have to remember, right? For every Every criticism, um, there's this, and for every problem, there's a solution, and there's an alternative. And you know, it's it's sometimes it's really hard to be an optimist, but you know, I think that is the basis for for progress and for uh, innovation. And you just don't don't accept something that doesn't make sense intuitively. Even if you know people are experts and everyone's telling you it can't be done, it's not the case. There's always a better way. For people who want to know more about Columbia Care, where can they go? So uh, we have a website, uh, www.coldcare.com, and there's a little, you know, we're not a big organization, so if you send that email, there's a good chance I'll actually get it. Um, but, you know, everybody's really passionate about what we're trying to do, so to reach out to us, let us know how we can be able to call us. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fascinating and a pleasure. Thank you. So for everyone at iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed production staff, we're so appreciative of the SALT Conference for being our gracious host here in Las Vegas. This is Doug Heikinen. Thank you for joining us.